0: Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School.
1: We're going to get started. So, those of you getting your lunch can rush through and get, get seated. Um, yeah, be Hello and, and welcome. That up. I'm Sarah Wald. I am Senior Policy Advisor at the Kennedy School, and with Hannah riley Bowles, I'm co-teaching the Gender and Policy Seminar this semester. The WAP, Women in Public Policy Program, a research seminar series on Thursday, has been tied to the seminar this year, and we have been just thrilled to have some incredible speakers around the theme of promoting gender equity in the workplace. And today, we are incredibly thrilled to have Monica Ramirez with us talking about shifting policy, workplace norms, and culture to end workplace sexual violence. Monica is a longtime advocate in this field. She's an attorney. She is a proud Kennedy School alum, and we're very proud of her. And she has founded multiple organizations dedicated to aiding farm workers and migrant women and working on this issue of sexual harassment in the workplace. She is the co-founder of Alianza Nacional de Campesina, which is the National Farm Worker Women's Alliance. She currently serves as the president of Justice for Migrant Women and the director of gender justice campaigns for the National Domestic Workers Alliance. She's received numerous awards from the Kennedy School, from the Smithsonian, and from others. Helped pen the Dear Sisters letter, which was published in Time magazine and has been credited in helping spark the Time's Up movement to uh, make the, the connections between the kind of sexual harassment that women in the entertainment industry were experiencing and sexual harassment and what sexual violence that women in isolated workplaces, such as farm workers or domestic workers, were also making. We welcome WEP's podcast community, which has downloaded our seminars over 48,000 times, and we are so happy about that because it it expands the impact of these incredible speakers. And we ask, please, that you turn off your cell phones. We'll have the question and answer period at the end, as usual, and we just remind people that an appropriate question ends with a question mark and is related to the speaker's topic. And with that, i want to turn it over to Monica Ramirez.
2: It's wonderful to be back. I always love coming back to HKS. Um, and whenever people read my bio, I, I, I feel like anxious, a little bit anxious. But then I understand that I'm in a room with people who get what it means to be founders and starters, and, and I feel a little bit more comfortable. So, <laughs> um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about some of what we've seen in the past year, some mm-hmm. of what we've all lived really um, in, in almost two years since November, uh, since October of 2017. Thank you. Um, but I want to kind of put it in context of my work. because I think that, that that, that's helpful in that, you know, we as a world experienced what I consider a sign boom in October of 2017, which is when 12 million people in a 24 hour period tweeted me too in response to Liz Milano's tweet, right? And then quickly thereafter. I think that the world experienced what I consider as a seismic shift. And the seismic shift essentially was taking the disclosures of millions of people across this country and across the world and, and taking a hard look at the problem that we have known for years has existed, which is workplace sexual violence, in addition to the full spectrum of sexual violence and other forms of gender-based violence against women and other people in our country and around the globe. But with that seismic shift came not only a recognition of something that we've all known for far too long, but it also came uh, a call to action. Mm-hmm. And then accountability. So I want to talk today a little bit about, from my vantage point, what those moments looked like and how we are moving forward, particularly focused on the accountability and the action steps. Right? So and I want to put it in context of my work, because as you know, I've been doing this work for nearly two decades. And so what happened in um, in 2017 wasn't something that happened overnight. And all of a sudden, people started thinking about sexual harassment and thinking about the solutions around the problem of sexual harassment. Really, that was built on decades of work that came before, not just here in this country, but in other parts of the world. So I'm the founder of Justice for Migrant Women, one of the entities that I formed. And we focus on the rights of women migrating, moving across borders, whether it be domestically or internationally for the purposes of finding work and the human civil rights of those migrant women workers. So we know that there are um, approximately 258 million women who migrate worldwide, or there are 258 million migrants worldwide, half of whom are for women. And the in order to address the needs of people who are moving across borders, um, it's important for us to use a number of different tools in order to achieve equity, justice and to preserve human and civil rights of these people. So in the work that we're doing, we are engaging administrative and policy advocacy, we're doing research, we're doing outreach and organizing. Uh, some of our colleagues and for much of my career has been focused on litigation. And, and we've also been focusing on this last ring, which I'm sure many of you in this room can appreciate, which is civic, en- civic engagement and leadership because in order for us to actually affect change on these issues, it it is our priority to ensure that the survivors who are experiencing these problems are the ones who are leading. So this is just a bit about our organization, so you have a little bit of an understanding of who we are and what we do. And we've been trying to present over the years, not just through this entity that I started and run, but through the other entities that I've been affiliated with, we've been trying to use all of our levers if you will, to try to effect change at preventing and addressing gender-based violence. In our case, in addressing the the inequities in the immigration system in this country and some of the immigration uh, laws that exist internationally, certainly focus on the the labor and and human rights of migrant women workers, and then the building power. And I can't underscore enough the importance of the building power, because I actually think that it was the power-building work that we've done over the decades, it brought us to a point where we're in now, which is the change-making phase that we're seeing in rapid acceleration. Two questions. One, are you open to questions as you go? Along. I am open to questions. And
0: can you elaborate a little bit more about, <coughs> about what you I mean by? Oh. So, my for you answer the first one. Um, can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by building power, or is that where you're headed right now? I
2: place? can talk about it. Now. Okay, great. So for us, building power, it's, so first of all, there's this inherent—unfortunately, um, there's this public conversation that happens oftentimes where we talk about who has power and who doesn't have power. And I believe that people who—people have power, and it doesn't matter how much money you make, it doesn't matter where you work, it doesn't matter where you are in the world, you have power, right? And it's one of the things that people say all the time about the farm worker community and immigrant women who I serve and the community that I come from is that we are powerless. That we are voiceless, right? And the reality is we are powerful. It's simply that we have not been given the platforms or the opportunity to exercise that power. So for us, power building is really focused on lifting up and amplifying the power that we have as people, no matter where we work, no matter where we live, no matter what our immigration status is. But but what we're also trying to do is we're trying to build collective power. So we as people have power as individuals, but then what does it look like when we bring 10 women together, 100 women together, thousands of women together, and how can we use the collective power to really actually push for the, the shift that's needed? And I'm going to talk more about sort of what that looks like in action because we've seen it play out over the past year. So the other thing is, in, in large part, informed by my studies here at the Kennedy School, I'd spent the greater part of my career as an attorney focused on litigating cases on behalf of people who've been aggrieved and trying to make policymakers understand what aggrieved people need in order to better their circumstances. And when I was here, I had this aha moment, and I decided, no, actually, what I need to do is I need to figure out how I get people who've been aggrieved to become the policymakers because they are the experts on their lives. They do know what the gaps are. How do we make those people become the people who are making the law? So in my case, when I graduated, I came out with a very clear directive of figuring out how I could make farm worker women and immigrant women, the elected officials in this country, and appointed officials across the country, so that they can then take those matters into their own hands. So when we talk about power building, it's both this collective power, so unifying the power that we each have as individuals, and then the civic engagement and leadership is really around the change making through policy and advocacy. Does that help? Any other questions? Okay. So as I said, you know, we know there are about 250 million Uh, Migrants worldwide, about half of whom are women, and we know that there are many reasons that people are migrating. They're migrating because of climate change, they're migrating because of violence, they're migrating because of economic circumstances. There are plenty of push factors that are causing people across this country and around the world to migrate. Our work has been really focused on figuring out what it is that we can do to support people who are experiencing violence in migration, other kinds of um, violations against them, So really thinking about what are the kinds of violence that people are fleeing, what are the the kinds of violence that people are experiencing in migration, and what are the kinds of violence that people are experiencing once they arrive here and live and work in our communities. We know that um, there are about 400 million around the world who are working in agriculture. In this country, because our data, unfortunately, is not where it should be, we have an estimate that there are between two to three million farm workers in this country. That's a pretty big gap. Two to three million, million people, not knowing this is kind of concerning to me. Um, but, we, but we know that above, among those, we have about 600,000 to 900,000 women who are working in agriculture. I come from a migrant farm worker family. That's the reason I do the work that I do. I'm the daughter and granddaughter of migrant farm workers. And what I know from being the daughter and granddaughter of migrant farm workers is that not much in this country has changed by way of the rights and circumstances of farm workers in this country. So wage theft continues to be a major problem. We know that women and men are still being sprayed with pesticides. Farm worker children are the youngest workers in our nation legally able to work at the age of 12, and in some circumstances with permission of their parents working even younger than the age of 12 legally. So, and we also know that agricultural workers do the important life-sustaining work, right? They pick, pack, and plant the, fruit, the food that we're eating right now. Unfortunately, despite the fact that farm workers do among some of the most important work in this country, they are not protected by many federal laws in this nation. So over 80 years ago when the Air Labor Standards Act was passed, farm workers as well as domestic workers were excluded from most basic federal employment provisions. So farm workers still today are not entitled to overtime. And there are many other problems that confront farm workers. And I just wanted to provide you with a little bit of context of what we're talking about, when we're talking about farm worker women, who really, in my opinion, have helped lay the foundation for this moment that we're living in, right? This moment of change that we're living in to finally address some of these big gaps in the law, and particularly around this problem of sexual violence. So farm worker women across this country and around the world literally suffer every day in order to put food on our tables. The little research that exists shows that in one study that was done in California, 90% of farmworker women said that work-based sexual violence is a problem for them. The most recent study that was done with farmworker women came out in uh, 2010, and it indicated that 80% of the women who were surveyed and said <coughs> that sexual harassment was a major problem. Why that matters, this study was done in the late 80s, and in 2014, we had a data set that essentially revealed a very similar thing, which is that despite the fact that we've been organizing, we've been bringing in the cases, we've been doing advocacy, we still have this alarming rate of women who are in fields across this country and in nurseries and packing sheds who are on a daily basis fearing that they're going to be subjected to sexual violence at work. We also know that farm worker women in this country have said that they use their clothes, including their bandanas, to protect themselves from unwanted sexual violence, unwanted sexual attention. But what that means is that farmworker women cover as much of their bodies as they possibly can, including using bandanas to protect themselves, to make themselves uh, look like men, to basically disguise the fact that they're women, because farm worker women have said that if they can do that, they believe that that will help them ward off this sexual attention, which is why in 2007, I created this project that some of you might have heard of, which is called the Bandana Project, which is focused on raising awareness around sexual violence against farm worker women. All right. So here we are. We know that we have this major, large-scale problem that is confronting farm worker women. And in the work that I've done over the years, um, I started really thinking a lot about who are farm worker women, what are the circumstances under which farm worker women are living in, how is it possible to live in this country that is one of the richest nations in the world and one of the most expensive countries in the world? How do you live on a salary of $11,000 a year, which is the average salary of a worker woman in this country? Well, the reality is you don't only do one job, right? Low-paid women workers do two or three jobs. So when we're talking about migrant farm worker women, we're also talking about domestic workers, and restaurant workers, and hotel workers, because literally, farm worker women in this country work by day in the fields, by night cleaning homes, and on the weekends working in some other job. So I thought a lot about how we start to break down the experiences of low-paid workers so that we as movements and communities stop putting people into these very specific boxes in which we aren't seeing the commonalities of experiences that people are having. And so that's why in 2006, I expanded my work to focus on all low-paid workers, not just farm worker women, and have continued to build. And what we know about that from my own work and from others is that in every low-paid industry that we look at, there's this high incidence of sexual harassment. It's not been organized around in the same way that we've organized in the farm worker community. But when you talk to people like the janitors in California who have organized the Abasta campaign, they're reporting out high numbers of sexual violence in the workplace, just like farm worker women, right? When we talk about people who are working in hotels and some of these other industries, when we actually ask the question of whether or not sexual harassment exists in these industries, what we found was that across the board, industry after industry, sexual harassment was being reported out as a a major workplace problem. And not to the shock, not to my shock or or other people in my movement, we found out pretty quickly in 2017 that even in the entertainment industry, one of the most visible industries in this nation and around the world, rampant sexual harassment was a problem for them too. So what we know is that from the lowest paid jobs to the highest paid jobs, from the least visible jobs to the most visible jobs, sexual harassment remains a widespread problem. But what most people don't realize is that the laws in this country and in many parts of the world actually do little to totally address these problems. So when we think about the shifts that we have to make, I wanna talk a little bit about the gaps and obstacles. So it's really extremely difficult when you're experiencing workplace sexual violence to think about coming forward when people don't think that gender-based violence is a major problem, right? Despite the fact that we know it, society at large, I would say prior to 2017, didn't think that this problem was a real endemic problem. It's a problem when most people don't understand what we're talking about when we're talking about sexual harassment, right? There was a study that was done right after the Me Too breakthrough moment, and people were asked about different kinds of behavior, and whether they consider different kinds of behavior sexual harassment and most times people responded that it was only the most egregious cases of sexual harassment that people actually thought was sexual harassment. So when we got to the situations including sexual assault or rape or attempted sexual assault or rape, people consider that to be a violation of, of one's body and, and, and perhaps an example of workplace sexual violence. But when we talked about things like inappropriate comments or touching or something that's been on the rise, sexting, those sorts of things were not things that people consider to be sexual harassment. So there's this wide misunderstanding of what is sexual harassment? What is the behavior that we as a country are defining as sexual harassment? You've been studying this so you know that the way that sexual harassment is defined is extremely problematic, right? The fact that the first Supreme Court case in this country was a case on behalf of a woman who was victimized at a bank, who was a victim of rape, was defined to be sexual harassment, in large part has been problematic, especially within the anti-sexual violence movement, because people say rape is rape, why are we calling it sexual harassment? So we have a problem in the way that the law has defined it, and we have a societal problem in the way that people understand what sexual harassment. But in addition to that, there have been so many instances in which gender-based violence, particularly sexual harassment and workplace violence, has been minimized, but it's just a comment. They didn't really mean anything by that. Boys will be boys. It wasn't a big deal, so they weren't harmed. Right? So we have instance after instance in which people are minimizing this issue. We also have a situation in which the law, as it's been written and as it's been carried out, appears to be more punitive than it has preventative. And what I mean by that is that when we talk about the law, we think about the amount of money that a company will pay for not having protected an individual from sexual harassment, right? Most people don't realize that the sexual harassment cases aren't against the person who committed the harm, but they're against the company that allowed the harm to persist, right? But people think of that as a negative. It's punitive We're taking action against a company instead of thinking about how we might prevent it in workplaces or in businesses. And the other thing is we don't have sufficient resources to protect or to support survivors who are coming forward. So those are some of the obstacles in terms of society. But here are some other obstacles. So in the workplace, we know that there's inadequate training. You learned about this. You talked about this. The current training that exists on the books, it's very much, it's remedial in that after a problem has happened, people are told to come forward, to use a certain mechanism to then bring a case. And in the best case scenario, you have a human rights person to whom you can make a report about what happened to you. But when we're talking about farm workers who are in an isolated field, who don't even know where to find the main office, let alone who the human resources person is, that actually isn't accessible to people, right? We have a stick rather than a carrot. We're not incentivizing people to be upstanders or bystanders to speak out on behalf of people who've been victims, or survivors of sexual harassment, we have a situation in which people get in trouble for doing the harm, the accountability piece, but we don't have a carrot where people are being encouraged to speak out and for one another when they see something that they shouldn't see. And in fact, in far too many cases, we've seen where people have been retaliated against or negative actions have been taken against them where they try to stick up for somebody who has talked about the sexual harassment against them. And then we have basically across the board, at all levels, within workplaces, within government, in society, we have a lack of leadership, the the lack of representative leadership of women, right? So the overwhelming cases of sexual harassment that we know about involve women, right? Those are the ones that we know about. But we can't forget, and we have to say, that that sexual harassment is an issue for men too, right? It's It's an issue for children who are working, It isn't an issue that only impacts women. Uh, But unfortunately, many of the cases that we see impact women. And what people have said and what the research bears out is that when there are more women in leadership roles and we have the reporting, sexual harassment looks different, responding to sexual harassment looks different, and the workplace culture looks different. (coughs) So these are society and workplace gaps (coughs) and obstacles. All right, but now let's talk about the law. So in our law, as it stands at the federal level, Title VII is the civil rights law that prohibits discrimination in all of its forms, including sex discrimination, sexual harassment being one form of sex discrimination. And in our law, as it currently stands, workers who work in places that have fewer than 15 workers are not protected, right? So what that means is that if you are an individual who is working, in my case, as as a farm worker on a farm that has 14 workers and you're sexually harassed, and you're a worker that works in a place that has 15 workers and you're sexually harassed, one person has rights and gets protection, one person gets none. If you're fortunate, the state law in this country provides, different states provide provide some kind of uh, remedy for sexual harassment or discrimination against you, but unfortunately, many states in this country do not. So unfortunately, many people are stuck with what is on the books at the federal level. And so we have whole groups of workers who just won't get helped if they're victims of discrimination and sexual harassment. And it's not just people who are categorized as workers, because the way the law has been defined requires that you be a worker who's on the books, an employee. So that means that if you're an independent contractor, you get no protection. That's really alarming, particularly those of you who are in this room who are studying the gig economy. Think about how many workers across this country get absolutely no protection because they're independent contractors. So we have these groups of workers who just aren't even contemplated for being covered under the law. We have this problem where people right now are being asked at the outset of being hired to sign agreements, non-disclosure agreements, that they're not going to talk about bad things that have happened to them. We have people who right now are being asked to sign documents that say that they will arbitrate any claims if they have any claims against their employer, that the way that they will choose to remedy those claims will be through an arbitration process. Before anything bad has even happened to them, right? We're talking about just when they get hired. And we have a situation in which the damages under the law of our country today are calculated, calculated in an unfair manner. Does anybody in this room know how damages are currently calculated under the law? So right now, if you are the victim of sexual harassment, your damages wouldn't be calculated based on your pain and suffering. Your damages are going to be calculated based on how many people you work with. So if you're working for an employer that has 15 to 100 workers, you have a cap on your damages, which is $50,000 for punitive damages, and the, the universe of recovery is really limited by the number of people you work with. And it goes from there, from 101 workers to 200, et cetera. In all other civil contexts in our country, damages, pain, and suffering wouldn't be limited based on the number of people you work with. It would be based on the pain and suffering that you experienced. And so currently, our law is flawed. And it is, it is setting caps, and it is creating boundaries for the, the amount of recovery that people can get based on who they work with. The other thing is, in our country, at this moment in time, if you were to be the victim of discrimination, You would only have 180 days to file your complaint with the EEOC, the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, or 300 days if you happen to be in a place that has a state law. 180 days or 300 days is an extremely short period of time, particularly if you are a person who's experienced workplace sexual violence. Because imagine the kind of trauma that people have experienced and have to make a decision within 180 days or 300 days as to whether they will take action. But not just that. In that period of time, they have to learn that they have rights. They have to learn what their rights are. They have to learn how to report the harm against them and find an attorney. If you're an undocumented worker in this country, can you imagine how difficult it is to jump through all of those hoops? And even if you're not undocumented, If you're a US citizen who knows your rights, who knows the legal system, who knows how to find a lawyer, it is incredibly difficult. The law of our country is flawed. And it's just not accessible to everyone, right? Because I spent 12 years of my career litigating these cases. I spent 12 years of my career litigating these cases for the lowest paid workers across this nation. And even I, as someone who did those cases through nonprofit organizations that didn't charge I understand just how cost prohibitive these cases can be. They're extremely expensive. So it's really difficult to bring them. And it's even more difficult if you're a private practitioner who's going to shoulder the cost of bringing that case, paying for that case, until it is settled or until otherwise it is resolved. So cost is a huge prohibitor for people to be able to seek justice, in addition to all the other factors that we've talked about. So we have some major, major gaps and obstacles that are currently confronting people. But we believe, and my work has been dedicated to ensuring that no one should have to experience workplace sexual violence. Not in the fields, not on the big screen, not in any other place. So despite these many barriers, there, myself and a number of others across this country have dedicated our lives to trying to, to work on this problem. And I have to say that, you know, the breakthrough moment that we've all experienced because of Toronto Burke and her vision, and because of the, the millions of people who came forward to talk about the violence they were experiencing, we finally have seen a true breakthrough. Not just one where we talk about how difficult things are, where we talk about all these obstacles and gaps, but really one in which we are, we have an opportunity to change things in a meaningful way. So since October 2017, According to a, a report that the National Women's Law Center put together, there were over 100 bills that were introduced between October of 2017 and October of, of 2018 specifically aimed at addressing this issue of workplace sexual violence. They, they dealt with things like the number of workers who would be covered in the workplace, so that threshold issue that I talked to you about. Some of the state laws dealt with things like the number of um, Uh, Rather, The way damages would be calculated, the amount of time people would have to to make a complaint. They address issues like whether or not someone would have to sign a confidentiality agreement. So in a one-year period, after decades of work that has been done by people across the country, the hardest work of which was done by the brave survivors that came forward. Mm -hmm. In a one-year period, we saw political leaders across this country move to action. And in 11 states, bills were passed. I actually have a handout for some of those that you who might want a copy of it so you can see this report, and I'm happy to share the link. This is significant, right? This is real change. And in addition to these bills that were brought at the state level, we also have federal legislation that was introduced. Then we had the Empower Act that was introduced last session that really dealt specifically with this question of whether or not people should have to sign confidentiality agreements. And whether arbitration clauses should exist for the for the longest time this issue of sexual harassment has been taboo no one wanted to talk about it let alone legislate around it people told me in my career that i would never see the changes that we've been advocating for these changes that i'm talking to you about we haven't been advocating for them uh, to change these things for only one year we've been advocating for years and years because based on our work we understood the gaps in the law and the ways in which people weren't able to access justice. And people told me that never would I see a day in my career where change could would be made. Well, I'm happy to report to you that they were wrong because change is being made. Mm-hmm. In April of last year, 150 domestic workers and farm worker women went to the U.S. Capitol and met with members of Congress and declared that we expected all work to be safe work. No exclusions, no loopholes. We demanded that the threshold be changed. We demanded the damages be calculated differently. We demanded that every single person across this country, no matter what sector they're working in, have the opportunity to actually fight for justice so that they have be wronged. We joined many, many people these conversations. So there were 150 farm worker women and domestic workers who left their states to go to the Capitol, which, let me tell you, that is no small feat. And along with these 150 brave women who came forward to talk about what needed to change in the laws, we have all of these other allies who started meeting with political leaders to talk about what had to change. And people say, well, it's really risky. If we change the law, it's really risky because what else would happen you know what are the other things that we might lose what are the other things that could be at risk and the only response that you could have to those kinds of comments was this there is a possibility that something could be done in this country to make the law weaker we deal with that possibility every single day we see every single day that there are rollbacks are happening. there's a possibility that that could happen but there is a certainty right now today that there are people who are being victimized who have absolutely no hope of ever recovering any kind of remedy. Mm -hmm. That is a certainty. Mm -hmm. And so because of those great women who went to the Capitol and because of many other people around the country, last week, the Be Heard Act was introduced into Congress by Camerley. The Be Heard Act is the first comprehensive bill in our history since 1964 when the Civil Rights Act was introduced, it will finally address these gaps and loopholes. And let me tell you that last week was one of the best days of my freaking career, (laughs) (laughs) because we see change happening. We see the problems, we see the gaps, we hear the stories and we know the pain of countless people across this country who have absolutely been told that their pain and suffering hasn't been valuable or worth change. And now we can tell a different story. And a different story is that there is a law in this country that's been introduced, that certainly still has to pass, that will lower the employee threshold from 15 workers to one. Mm-hmm. There is a law in this country that will now provide additional resources to employers of all sizes about this issue and how to prevent and remedy it There is a law in this country that will eliminate the tipped minimum wage for restaurant workers who are among the highest uh, rate of employees who experience sexual violence because they are literally at the liberty of the whims of the the customers who come to them. So if you look at the numbers of people who report sexual harassment, restaurant workers are among the highest. Or finally at a point where the protections for workers who are LGBTQI and and older workers and whole groups of other workers who've been denied protection of the law could actually receive some justice under this one. And we finally are at a point in our country where there's going to be a push for more research and for more data about this problem, about the scope of this problem, so that we as advocates and activists and, and others on the ground can actually start coming up with some solid plans about how to attack a problem. It's really difficult to come up with a solid plan of action to address an issue when we don't even understand the scope of the problem that we're talking about. Anecdotally, we know, from the stories from the workers that we talk to, we know, but this actually provides the possibility of having real resources to do the research. And it also provides the possibility of having grants so that people on the ground who are doing the work to provide legal protection, to provide survivors with support, can have resources that they need. There are so many other wonderful things that are in this law. Every single thing that is in this law is necessary, but of course it was just introduced. So now we have to do the hard work of getting other people in Congress to sign on to this bill, to co-sponsor this bill, and then to actually push it forward. Because the bill, in my opinion, and I'm a lawyer, and I feel like I can say this, the law is only so good as it is accessible to people. Mm -hmm. The law is only so good as it is actually utilized to win justice. <coughs> the law means very little if it exists on the books and doesn't actually change anything for people. So we have to do the hard work of getting these additional protections so that people even have the possibility of getting remedies for the harm against them. But that's only part of it, right? Because I didn't talk to you only about problems in the law. There are other problems too. We need to make sure that there's a shift in culture. So we really want to remedy this problem. We need to make sure that there are more women in places of decision-making and power to be able to create the systems and structures and the climate that will finally start to minimize and address this problem. Content creation. So how many of you watch TV and movies? (laughs) How many of you have watched a TV show or a movie, where they make fun of things like sexual harassment, or sexual harassment training, or talking about sexual violence, or whether or not so and so tells the truth. Mm -hmm. It happens all the time. We are consuming this content. So one of the other reasons why it's significant that you have farm worker women, who've linked arms with women across the entertainment industry is because we're seeing that the women in the entertainment industry are using their power to change their industry, to demand more people in the the room where decisions are being made, to demand that the writers who are writing the stories are people who look like the country and the world, people who are sensitive to things like not making jokes about sexual harassment and sexual violence. These are not mind-blowing things. But unfortunately, there are things that people hadn't contemplated before, and that's why we could have a situation in which people were making fun of the sexual harassment training that every single worker should and needs to receive. So we have to work on the content creation. We have to work on breaking the silence. So we have millions of people now who have broken the silence about the kind of experience that they've had in the workplace, but we have to continue that. And the reason why this is a critical juncture is because we are now living through the backlash. How many of you have read a story where people talk about how all we want to do is to bring down all the men? (laughs) We just want everyone to get fired, right? We're just trying to make sure that only women have jobs in this country. I mean, the kinds of things that we read and the kinds of things that we're hearing, the backlash is real. So we have to continue to ensure that people are talking about this problem in a productive way that impacts the people in our closest circles that can then help to further this public education that needs to happen. Because it's a public education coupled with the political action, coupled with the actual passage of this law that is eventually going to result in what we all want, which is the end of this problem. We have to talk about who is an expert and who has power, to Hannah's point earlier right there's been too many years in this country where we only think about people like me who have a law degree and, and a degree from Harvard as experts mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. do you want to know who an expert is on sexual harassment in the workplace farm worker, farm worker women janitors hotel workers have salary workers All the people who we don't get to hear from ever, they are experts and they are powerful. And we, as people who have privilege and power, need to do what we can to elevate their voices and their leadership because they hold the answers. When they were meeting with members of Congress, they were telling members of Congress exactly what they need in order to make things better for their lives. And if we don't do the work of elevating those people who hold the answers, no one else is going to do it. So I say to you in this room, who will write, who will research, who will go off and lead states and countries, think very carefully about who you're elevating as the experts and the powerful. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that we have to do is we really, really have to think hard about who's setting the agenda. Who decides which gaps should be addressed? Who decides what things should be at the, on the table when we're talking about what gets funded, who gets funding, where resources get, get pushed. If we don't have the right people at the table, then what's gonna end up happening is one of the things that many of us have been concerned about since the Me Too breakthrough and since Time's up launched is that we're gonna have a situation in which those with the most access, those with the most money, and those with the most power get the most attention and really are the ones who receive the benefit of this moment that we're in and it's actually not going to reach some of the most vulnerable people among us so that's part of the work that we have to do we have to create a better climate and workplaces across this country we have to encourage people to be hired employers we have to tell them that if they lead on issues like sexual harassment and coming up with policies that are even better than what the law requires That's actually admirable, and as consumers, those are the kinds of companies that we want to support. We have to talk about the business imperative around creating safe workplaces. You see, when people feel safe at work, they do better work. And what that means for the company is that they get a better outcome. And what that means for our labor economy is our labor economy is stronger. So you know, there's this false narrative around sexual harassment policies and training being only for the benefit of the worker. Well, if you take a close look at it, actually it's for the benefit of the employer and for our entire economy. So we have to encourage employers to think about this in this way, this issue in this way, so they can then begin thinking about the business case for making changes to provide workplaces that are safe and to ensure that workplaces are safe. And I strongly feel, and I was talking to Sarah about this earlier, I think we have to, th- to change the way that we're doing trainings. The training that's happening across this country right now isn't working. People are afraid to report, if they even know how to report. The investigations that are happening aren't always happening the way they should, right? People think that they're tattletale, They're trying to get people in trouble. And so the, the, the outcome of that is that people either will go forward, and they might end up being retaliated against, they might lose their job, or they won't report at all. And so I think that we have to change the way in which we're, we're training people and, and the kinds of policies that we're putting in place. And I think that that also goes hand in hand with really having a deeper discussion about, rather than thinking about the kind of p- behavior that we want to prevent or stop, we really have to sit down as a country and think about what kind of environments we want to promote. What is the world and the world of work that we want to create that is for the benefit of the worker and the benefit of the employer, and that's where we should focus. Because if people only focus on the ways in which these policies are being used to report something bad after it's happened, then obviously there's gonna be a negative reaction to those. So I strongly say, it's gonna take all of us. It's not just me on the ground, rallying. It's not just farm worker women across the country. It's not just janitors or domestic workers, you know, They said when when they launched the Title IX campaign that it's on all of us, it's on all of us. And it starts at this stage in universities because we have to teach people how to be upstanders in universities just like we have to teach people how to be upstanders in the workplace. And if we don't put an end to workplace sexual violence, we have to consider what the consequences are for society at large. Because workplace sexual violence isn't only a civil rights issue and it's not only an employment rights issue. Workplace sexual violence is a health issue, and it's a safety issue. Perpetrators perpetrate, on average, nine times. Perpetrators who perpetrate violence in the workplace are likely to perpetrate violence elsewhere. So it behooves us, as a nation and as a world, to come up with good, sound solutions that are going to address this problem at home, in the workplace, and in society at large, because that's what workers deserve, And that's what we all need. Mm -hmm. Thank you.
1: Okay. We're now going to take questions from the audience. And our tradition is to start with the seminar students. So if anyone has a question, Anne. I'll
0: take I'll take well,
2: for, thank you so much for your talk. It was so inspiring. And we've had this conversation during the whole term, and just putting this together and through your experience was very uh, inspiring. So thank you. My question is, um, how, how, what was the process of uh, having the victims speak up, uh, in particular in an industry where uh, the norm is um, is sexual harassment, and it, it gets to be yeah
0: normalized. Yeah. How do you, what what was what were the steps that the,
1: um, the group took, or that you managed to um, to create,
2: or the space to create for them to decide to speak up collectively? Mm-hmm. So thank you for your question. Um, you know, and that that brings to mind the fact that farm worker women. Call the fields Fields of Panties and the Green Motel. Because sexual violence against them in the workplace is so prevalent. Farm women have talked about the fact that they actually consider sexual violence to be a term and condition of their employment. If they want to work, that's something that they will put up with. So it's extremely challenging, particularly when you know 50% of farm workers in this nation are undocumented. It's extremely challenging to get people to talk about an issue that it has been has been taboo for so long, and also where there are real risks that people are going to lose their jobs. Women talk to me about the fact that they don't want to, they don't want to complain because they're afraid that they'll be kicked out of their community. Right? Some of the people who are on their crew, they're the only people they know here in this country. Mm-hmm. And if they talk about what's happened to them, then they might get ostracized and kicked out of their community, and that's not a risk that they want to take. So the way that we've been able to work with farm worker women to talk about what's happened to them, first of all, is you know, I do camp outreach. So I go into migrant farm worker camps and I go door to door and I educate people about what their rights are. And we never talk about, we never ask people if they've experienced sexual violence themselves and we don't talk about the, the individual, we talk about the group. So when I talk to people about sexual violence, I talk about the fact that we've created a movement to address workplace sexual violence against farmworker women because we know that many of them have experienced, many people have experienced it, right? We share stories about the women who've come forward. So there's a woman who I represented, and that was in, when, uh, was one of my clients from Florida. And um, we were in the middle of her case, and, and I, and her case actually would have been a class if we hadn't settled it. We settled it during the administrative process, but the sexual harassment was widespread where she worked. And so if we'd litigated it, we would have brought it as a class. and. And when I was talking to her about her case, she said, we need to see that people have lived through it. And what she meant was that women across the country, farm women specifically, and immigrant women, they needed to hear the stories of other women who came forward to know that they lived through it. And she meant lived through it, right? Because there's a risk of physical violence and even death for some people when they come forward. And so we created a book, it was called Voices for Justice, And we told the stories of women who brought different kinds of cases, including sexual harassment, who allowed their stories to be told and their pictures to be used, so that we could then share that with other women, so that they could then feel like they were not alone. So a lot of the work that we've done has been around sort of making clear that this isn't the individual's problem, because the perpetrator often will tell people that it's just them and that no one's going to help them. And so we've tried to make it clear that this is a widespread problem. We know it's a widespread problem. There have been women who have come forward, what their cases have been like, and then what the process is like if they go forward. And also, that there isn't only one way of coming forward. So people might choose to go a civil civil route and bring a charge of discrimination or eventually a lawsuit, but some people might just want to be relocated. You know, they want different housing. They want to be taken to a different state. And so for me it's been particularly important to make sure that we explain to people the full range of remedies available to them including the criminal justice system, even though very few people choose to bring criminal charges against their perpetrators for fear. We explain the full range because survivors need to know that it is their decision to make as to how they want to take action and the kind of remedy that they they feel that they need for themselves. And overwhelmingly in the cases that I've handled, the women who have come forward have said that they're not coming forward for themselves, or are coming forward so that no other women will have to suffer. Monica, thank you so much for that presentation. Um, you mentioned um, workers in the gig economy and uh, people like uh, interns and uh, contractors and others who aren't. Uh, part of any traditional employment arrangement, and I'm wondering if you could comment on the particular challenges of organizing that group of workers when they don't necessarily consider themselves employees and don't necessarily have a workplace.
0: Okay. Yeah,
2: I mean, you, you, that's those are big problems, right? That we don't, we don't know where to find workers. So you know, in the in the situation with farm workers, um, we have at least some sense as to where the labor camps are, because some of our families have lived in them. Some of our families have worked in them. And so we have an idea of where we can find people. Um, and and also, you know, with some immigrant workers, we know that we do some of our outreach during soccer games and at laundromats and at um, stores that serve particular ethnic communities because we know that's a place where people go. And so the way the outreach happens has been, that's the way we've been doing outreach for years and years. But with the gig economy, it's a lot harder because we don't know where to find people. People aren't necessarily congregating in a particular space. And so I think for the gig economy in particular, it's gonna be really, we're gonna have to lean more on digital organizing uh, because people who tend, who are in the gig economy tend to have access, particularly since a lot of the work that they do is through through an app or through online um, action. I think we're gonna have to rely a lot more on digital organizing to find people to then be able to try to educate them about their rights and and to be able to get them to know that they can take action. But the challenge is when you have these laws that actually don't protect them because of the classification or in some cases the misclassification of workers, it makes it much more challenging. And that's the other reason why when we talk about these kinds of issues, we have to talk about the remedies that exist outside of the employment and civil rights context. Because in some states, while someone might not be protected against sexual harassment under a state law or under the existing federal law, they might have another kind of civil remedy, right? So they might have a claim for assault under the state civil law uh, for personal injury, but maybe they don't have a claim under the existing employment structure, employment legal structure, because of the way the law's been written. So I would say that for those employees it's also for the gig economy workers, it's important for us to also talk beyond just the employment laws because they don't consider they are considered by the law to be employees and they don't consider themselves to be employees. Um, I would say that one of the, the the two sectors that would be most aligned with the gig economy uh workers in terms of trying to figure out how to organize them have been care workers caregivers and domestic workers which you know one of the hats i wear is working with the national domestic workers alliance um and i initially it was because there were with the domestic workers alliance it was because there were small local groups organizing domestic workers in localities and states which then eventually became what is now the alliance Um, but now there's more of of a um an attempt to use digital communication to reach them. So for National Domestic Workers Alliance, there's actually been uh, an app or a bot that's been created to help connect the workers. So with those two sectors in particular, we're starting to look at more um, opportunities to use these non-traditional methods of organizing to reach them. Let's do the
1: back Yeah, so my question is that the, the way people perceive risk in coming forward when they have a, an issue. And uh, i talked to some people in a professional environment who feel if they knew if that perpetrator had other issues with other women as well, they would surely go forward, but they're not sure if they're the only ones. And it gives them great confidence if they knew there were others. So have you thought of partnering across industries, like let's say with the technology industry, to create an app where, let's say I experience something, I'm able to search if that individual, other people also have had issues. And when it comes up to two or three, I don't have to do the names necessarily. It comes up, okay, and then you can search out those other people that are, and doing it in a legal way so that we're not doing the wrong thing. But I believe there are solutions that are purely app-based
2: that can make a huge difference in minimizing the risk issue in people's minds and coming forward. Yeah, so there are actually a number of apps that have been created or are being created to do just exactly what you're talking about. Certainly, there's questions of liability around disclosure of someone's identity through an app like that, particularly if it's, if it's difficult to prove whether that the allegation is true. Um, you know, I think that. The, there was a list that was put together by, I believe it was in, by journalists, that talked about um, different people in the media community who were alleged to have committed certain acts. And so there's been consequences related to that. We've seen cases that are now being brought against survivors who are bringing cases. So we see cross litigation happening, um, which also poses the challenge. Um, and, and But one of the things that is important about the Empower Act, which is one of the bills I talked to you about, is that there is in the act, so the EMPOWER Act essentially has been is, is folded into or is contemplated um, as a part of the Be Heard Act. So the EMPOWER Act was introduced last year and that really went to the, the issue of non-disclosure agreements and arbitration. And in the EMPOWER Act, there's an entire section that talks about making reports to the EEOC and being able to use this hotline to be able to report um, anonymously or to the extent possible. Honestly, so that if, they, if the government starts to see a trend that a particular workplace has been named more than one time or several times, then they, on their own, the government could then initiate their investigative investigation into a workplace. So there are apps that are being have been created and are being created, um, and there have been there have been measures that have been contemplated for purposes of the, of the policies that are being put forward to do exactly what you're talking about um, in the context of guest workers. There's a, a a, a heat map that was put together that would track different kinds of violations, including sexual harassment, so people who were coming over on visas, whether it be an H-2A or H-2B visa, or even a J-1 visa, um, they would be able to then look to see if the employer or the recruiter had been engaged. So, so, and, and there was another app that was created by, um, the, by Adama, EU and others um, that's related to um, disclosure. Uh, there, Adam was one of the silence breakers who came forward to talk about um, sexual harassment in politics. So she she broke the story around California state legislator, legislature and sexual harassment, and then her entity that she set up created an app. So there are things like that that are in progress, but then there are of course these questions about sort of legal repercussions and then any other kind of backlash. So it's like we have to look at the opportunities for people to report, but then we also have to look at any kind of potential uh, negative consequences because those, all of those things—the positive and the negative—right now are being tested. Hi. Jen. Hi. Um, sorry. Sorry. Thank you. Um, thank you so much, Mr. Rose, for the presentation. The talk it was fabulous. Um, I loved what you said about uh, uh, how you know we think about experts on this topic, and, and falsely we think about you know people who like we don't think about the people who are experiencing it every day um and i'd love to kind of hear your thoughts or specific tactics you have for for navigating that balance of like being a good ally and putting in the work and supporting people who are going through things that are difficult um without like demanding you know that they teach me exactly what i should do should sure. be helpful um how much to demand
0: and give and how how you think of navigating that
2: i, I think it's always just about making space you know so I talk about um, our experience on the red carpet when we went to the Golden Globes a lot when I, when I think about this particular premise because you know, most people think that we went to this really fancy party, which we did, but it was, <laughs> it, it was a planned action, you know? It was a planned action. And in planning for that action, we went through a very deliberate process to figure out what it would be like when we were on the red carpet and the media was only going to want to talk to the, the women in entertainment, about their experiences and not necessarily want to hear from the people that they brought as their guests. And so we, we deliberately and consciously said that we were going to pass the mic every single time we were going to pass the mic, and that's what happened. So on the red carpet, when someone would ask Laura during a question, she would say, well, I'm actually here so that you can hear from Monica. She passed the mic. I'm doing cross-sector organizing on this issue. So not only with farm worker women and domestic workers, but across sectors. And my intention is to every opportunity I get, pass the mic if people want to share their expertise and their story. So it's about making room. So there was a period of time after the Golden Globes when I, and after the letter went viral, I received literally press requests from all over the world. And frankly, it was really overwhelming because I wasn't equipped to manage that moment. But what mattered to me wasn't that farm worker women only be heard because of our letter. But, but we needed to make sure that all of the other people who were doing work on this issue were going to be here too, who are doing too. So when I was taking media, I would only do media with the stipulation that they would then interview these other industries. So we have to make the space, right? And then people have to decide whether or not they want to step into it. And they might decide that they don't. But if we don't even try to make the space, then we have a situation in which you're only hearing from a few people. and that, And that could have happened in the past year and a half. But the reason it didn't happen is because we very deliberatively made the space and then people decided whether they wanted to speak out. And so now we're hearing more from native women and we're hearing more from trans women, we're hearing more from you know, women with disabilities. It, and it's because we are continuing to make the space. Um, and I don't think we should ever demand that anyone teach us about their suffering. I think we we open up the opportunity for people to share if they want to. And if they choose not to, we acknowledge the fact that there are people who have chosen not to because it's too painful. And we acknowledge the fact that there are people who don't have access to the mic to be able to tell their stories. And every single time, I think it's it's on us to make sure that we are acknowledging both of those truths. Mm
1: Hi. uh, Thank you so much. I am here from Maine. And we had um, an experience where we were really organizing around the Kavanaugh vote with Senator Collins. And it it was really cathartic, the storytelling and the sharing. And then it was incredibly disappointing. Um, And a lot of vicarious trauma sort of got held. And we hadn't really set up the space for enough healing and attention to survivors. We did sort of draft protest. Uh, trauma-informed protest guidelines that we couldn't really figure out how to implement. And so I'm curious if in your work or what you're seeing in terms of new creative interventions for supporting survivors as this work is being done, um, and any other thoughts you have about how to bring healing into the, into the uh, campaigns.
2: Yeah, so I think that one of the, one of the challenges in organizing this movement as well is sort of like a, it's like a plus and a minus, if you will, So the plus is that we have a bunch of new folks who have now come into the space and wanna organize around this issue. The minus or the challenge is that they don't necessarily have all the tools that they need to to be able to do it. So I'll give you an example. I was just talking to someone the other day about a a big training that they wanted to do all about sexual violence. And um, because I've done this work for so long and because I've had the bad experience where people have gone into crisis, Mm -hmm. right? if you don't know that you need to have a crisis plan in place and you need to have a counselor there and you need to make sure that people are aware that they that they should see X person in the corner to talk about, whatever, if you don't if you don't have the experience to know that, then you're not gonna think about that and then that's not gonna be in place. And so one of the, the pluses is that there are more people organizing, but one of the difficulties is that if, if they haven't had the opportunity to work with people who have more experience and know that particular thing, then they're not gonna think about it. And so then we have a situation in which People are being asked to tell their stories and there's no support for them, onsite or otherwise. So I think that that is about collaboration between people who have been in the work for a long time and sharing our models and strategies and, and the people who are newer to the space having access to that information. <coughs> and I think one of the things that sometimes happens in movements, and unfortunately we've seen this for a long time in different movements, is that if someone's been doing the work forever, there starts to, there's this like territorial thing that starts happening. People are like, this is my movement. And you're, you're like, but actually, like we all we all need the work. We all need the movement. And so, and there should be many of us doing the work. And so, we have to, as people who've been organizing on this for a long time, be open to making sure that our materials and resources are available, so that we can then have the conversation. Like, have you thought about what you're going to do if someone goes in crisis? And have you thought about what your check-in plan is going to be for people a week after your rally? Right? Are you going to send people a text message or an email and say? That was really hard because mm-hmm. it's not that they're just going to process it in the day or in the moment. Like that was really hard, and here are some additional resources and support for you. Um, and so for me, in my, in my, from my perspective, I think it's about collaboration amongst us. And you know, I was involved in some of the organizing too around the Kavanaugh situation, and um, I think for all of us, it was really painful. You know, I was in, it was in California when all when all that came down, and I was in a group just a room just like this one of people and you know it was there were many people who were crying in that room because we had built up the organizing around it and people were coming out in numbers that we hadn't seen before and then there was the what people thought was the unexpected outcome particularly coming off of this high of finally having these really important breakthroughs and then all of a sudden people felt like we did everything we could and, and it didn't come out the way we thought it should you know. So I, I think it's like let's keep having that conversation about the pain that comes with organizing, but not necessarily the out, reaching the outcome that we need to. And then I think we just have to continue to support each other as organizers to make sure that you know I, you should have all the tools I have, right? And we should be trading information about what worked and what didn't work. And I think that's how we're going to make our movement stronger. Mm-hmm. I have
0: to, oh, you do. No, you go ahead. And then, yeah. um, So going
1: back to um, one of your earlier slides where you talked about the um, one challenge being that people don't label as sexual harassment the whole range of behaviors. Um, This is also reflected in the law, which requires persistent pervasive behavior. I'm wondering about those lower level behaviors that we don't want. They're still damaging, but they probably don't rise to the level that many people would automatically label or that might even be actionable under the law, do you have any thoughts about how employers, how organizations can
2: address those as the starting point for behavior, which we don't want? Mm. Yeah, so in our outreach materials, we actually have this um, visual sort of of the range, sort of what's on the spectrum of sexual violence and work with sexual violence specifically so that people, and we have examples of what those would look like so that people could, could see them to better understand what they might be experiencing, but maybe they didn't realize with sexual harassment. So I think that employers need to have information like that too. And so I'm hopeful that when the EEOC comes up with the training materials and as they put forth the scenarios that they're that they're sharing scenarios that include all all the scenarios. But the other thing is we have to talk about the cumulative negative harm mm-hmm. that is created because of those various actions, right? And and, and sometimes people talk about sexual harassment happening Sort of, they they talk about it sort of building to, um, you know, from like inappropriate comments and and touching and building to uh, sexual assault or attempted sexual assault and rape, and so they describe it that way. But the reality is that isn't how it happens, oftentimes, right? Um, And so we have to talk about sort of the different ways in which it can happen, and we have to talk about the, the cumulative impact of any one of those things happening. And I think that right now, I don't know if you've seen the EEUC guidance on sexual harassment, I'm sure you have, and in it they you know they have these various scenarios, but they don't really talk about, so they say like, you know, scenario X, like, this thing happened to this worker, um, and this would be considered sexual harassment, and this is what your obligation is, what have you. But what they don't talk about is what what the environment is like, then, if that one thing happened, so then what does that environment become like for every other worker, and what's the propensity for something else like that to happen? So one of the things that people talk about is the fact that when they've been sexually harassed and they complain about it and the employer doesn't do anything about it, then actually that makes it worse for everybody because then people think that they can do something and get away with it right? So, so what we're not seeing is that as people are explaining the different kinds of harm that can be committed, sort of the outcome of taking action or not taking action. And I think that's what I think we have to have that complementary education. Um, and I don't know if the EEOC is planning to go there. I
0: have my last question, Hannah. Um, so okay. you are a total inspiration, it's very powerful, your, your work and your words. Um, I'm thinking about your theme of creating the space, and I'm also thinking about the tension that Anne raised at the beginning that we suffered in this class, which is this one that you're, I mean, I love your line. You say, it's really difficult to come up with a plan of action absent data on what will be effective. That's like, academics love to hear that. That's so great. Um, but then, you know, you also make this very important point about, well, wait a minute, who are the experts? You know what I mean? That we need to think about the people who are, you know, suffering the most, or who have least access. You know, in a lot of ways, we, you know, maybe our studies don't get read that widely, but we have a, a lot of platforms to kind of put things out. And then I'm thinking about your idea of opening the space, and I'm looking at, you're you're this bridge for us in many ways. You know, this very, you've been for some time like bridging the privileged and the less privileged and creating this space for conversation and opening that space for conversation across those two. And I I don't know if you have any advice for us to how to, you know, you're in high demand, you can't bridge, (laughs) you know, how do we, how do we expand that bridge for us? Like, how do we create more conversation um, so that we're not just in our ivory tower producing studies for elites who write policies for, to your point, people rather than you know getting more direct
2: access. Yeah, so I, um... <laughs> <laughs> so for those of us who are in the field doing the work, we need to have a summit or a conference where you bring together academics who want to research this, to- together with us. Because I have three research topics right now that I know, that I want to do. I have three reports that I want to do right now, but I have to get funding for them, right? Just like academic institutions have to get funding for them, too. And so who's gonna write those studies? Like, who's gonna who's going to make sure that whatever survey we come up with is something that's gonna actually withhold the test of, of being written in the correct format? Right? Like, we need that, I think that we need Uh, We need researchers to work together with people in the field so that we can do the research that we need to do, um, you know, together or separately, because we won't be able to do everything together. And I think the other thing is um, we need to make sure that the true experts are in the room when things are being designed. Not only being asked about their experience after the survey has been designed, but in the design phase of creating the instrument, because if we just wait until the instrument has been created and then elicit responses from people, we don't know if we're asking questions the right way. We, don't, you know, for example, when I when I, when I first started my practice, and when I started my practice it was in Florida, and so part of the workers I was working with were Spanish speaking, and part of the workers I was working with were Creole speaking. They were they were from Haiti. And I, you know, I used my little like whatever software and created my little pamphlet and had someone, and it was terrible. No one <laughs> understood it. No one understood. I didn't use the right words. So you have to be involved in the design piece, But I, but I, I, can't understate like the need, the coming together of groups, many of whom I'm in touch with, with researchers who really want to research, and not just, and not just sexual harassment. It's across the spectrum of gen, of, of inequality. Um, you know, because we can't talk, especially when we're talking about low paid workers, we can't talk about sexual harassment in a vacuum because it very much is related to the pay gap and, and sort of these other issues. And, and unfortunately, what happens often is we sort of talk about one thing and we don't see all the connections to the other things. And so, so I, would, I would plead that. And the last thing I would say is that when people like me, because I'm in the fields and I'm a grassroots organizer, even though I appreciate the academic side, I'm not an academic. So when I do research and publish, mm-hmm. it is questioned. Right? It is considered biased. So we need both. We need people in the field who are, who are on the ground, who know who to ask, who know how to bring together the groups to do the research. But then we need people like all of you to do the research that we can't do, that will not, will not be questioned, because you won't be considered biased in the way that I would be. Well,
1: unfortunately, we are out of time. Please join us next week for the WAP seminar, uh, continuing the discussion about organizing for social change with uh, Jenny Mansbridge, who is an eminent political scientist, and she's going to be talking about organizing for the Equal Rights Amendment. Strategies, strengths, failures, what we have learned and what we could learn going forward. And let's please thank you so much.